Hello, I'm John Higginson, founder of Nature 2030 and purpose-led communications consultancy, Higginson Strategy. I set up Nature 2030 in 2019 in response to a UN IPCC report saying we have until 2030 to save the world from catastrophic climate change. The purpose of Nature 2030 was to pull together the dynamic and passionate people I've been lucky enough to work with over the years. Our aim is to seek real solutions to the environmental challenges we face. Nature 2030 are currently working with politicians around the world to make net zero commitments ahead of COP26 in Glasgow next month. We're also looking for businesses that want to be part of the solution. So if that's you, but you don't really know how to go about it, get in touch. We want to speak to you. One person I've been lucky enough to work with over the past few years is Bianca Pitt, founder of She Changes Climate. Bianca is a passionate environmentalist fighting for more female representation at the top table of climate talks. We are proud to have her as a Nature 2030 board member, and she is this week's host. She interviews Craig Bennett, former CEO of Friends of the Earth and current CEO of the Wildlife Trusts. Now on to the interview. Enjoy. Welcome to today's podcast from Nature 2030, an international campaign calling on business, governments and the third sector to work together on the environmental challenges of this decade. My name is Bianca Pitt. I'm co-founder of She Changes Climate and board member of Nature 2030. Today, I'm lucky enough to be joined by the CEO of the Wildlife Trust, Craig Bennett. The Wildlife Trusts are a confederation of wildlife conservation charities dedicated to protecting the UK's natural environment. Under Craig's leadership, the Wildlife Trust is seeking to put a third of the UK's land and sea into nature recovery by 2030. Prior to joining Wildlife Trust, Craig was CEO of Friends of the Earth, where he fronted several high-profile campaigns on bees, fracking, and against the expansion of Heathrow Airport. Earlier in his career, Craig was Deputy Director at the University of Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership and Director of the Prince of Wales's Corporate Leaders Group on Climate Change. I'm delighted to speak to him today. He's one of my favorite people in the sector. Uh, welcome, Craig, over to you. I want to hear from you. What's your story? What brought you into this in the first place? Why are you here today? Well, Bianca, thank you very much. That's a very kind uh, introduction. Thank you. It's great to be speaking with you today. You know, honestly, I've been asked this question a few times before now, and I can't honestly say why did I uh, get into this. Um, to be honest, what I find perplexing is that the vast majority of people aren't into this in quite the same way that I am. You know, from a from a quite early age and certainly from sort of teenage years, it just struck me as absolutely obvious that, you know, if humanity was going to have a future, uh, surely the next step of human progress was to live fairly within environmental limits. You know, actually, there is no human progress unless we learn to live, all eight, nine billion of us, uh, uh, on this planet as if we mean to stay. And I, to this day, I've never really understood why people, why the vast majority of people and, and you know, actually our kind of global economic system and political system just doesn't seem to fully embrace that. Um, this is not, 
you know, the the sort of environmental arguments are not uh, opposed to human progress, as some some people will sometimes put it. To my mind, they absolutely are the next step of human progress. And that's what all the science says really clearly. You know, unless we learn to live fairly within environmental limits, there might not next be another step of human civilization. So, you know, let's just get to it. Mm, I totally agree with you. Were you one of those children growing up, you know, living in trees, uh, spending all your time in the garden, uh, watching bees and, and birds uh, buzz about, or were you someone who was brought up in the city? No, I mean, uh, not particularly. Uh, I was brought in, up in sort of suburban Greater London, the London-Essex boundaries, if, if you know that in the UK. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, of course, I enjoyed days out in, in nature. And of course, I enjoyed, you know, family holidays out into sort of more wilder places. But it's not as if I was one of those people that was constantly sort of out and about in in nature. Um, I I did enjoy seeing sort of nature in the garden and so on. But no, I think for me, it's always been a sort of broader point um, that and it's not just been about nature. It's been about, uh, yes, about the need for us as humanity to embrace nature and recognize that we're part of nature. But actually, it's just also been about that that wider sort of sustainability story of just, uh, you know, efficient, equitable use of resources about the need for what we would now call a circular economy. That's always seemed pretty obvious to me. And and actually just the need to kind of follow the science about what it says we need to do. And, um, you know, so that across across the piece, really, um, I've always just been driven by that. And, you know, again, I find it really odd that we can uh, you know, in society, have conversations about the direction we should be going on the economy or in politics or in technology that doesn't relate to that, because otherwise it's all ends up pretty irrelevant, I think. Mm-hmm. I think people will be interested to hear about your, your career path, you know, how you, you know, if someone wants to become active in the space, how how can they go about it and how did you go about it? Well, I remember telling my uh, careers teacher when I was at school, when I was probably about 15, that I wanted to be an environmental campaigner. And this was in the 1980s. And at the time, you know, the, the, what would happen is he w- people would go to this careers teacher and say, I want to, you know, do this kind of profession or that profession. And they'd look up on it. Uh, he'd look up on his very basic computer that you had in the 1980s in this case, a BBC B micro for anyone that remembers those and type in a code and it would print out the A-levels and then the degree course you need to do to become that. And of course, there was no such code for environmental campaigner. That was just not seen as something you do as a career. That was a crazy thing to do. And so he said, well, I can't I can't suggest what you do for that. So instead, um, without asking, he printed out for me what I needed to do at A-levels in university to become a careers teacher. And he thought, that's what I should do instead, uh, which I then ignored, of course. Uh, so what I actually did is I did my kind of A-levels um, and uh, those are sort of the high school qualifications in, in the UK. Uh, geography was one of the subjects I absolutely loved. I did a geography degree at the University of Reading, first of all, and I did that. I was particularly interested in that in, they offered a human and physical geography degree. And I was always interested in the reaction, in, in the interaction between human geography and physical geography. Then I did a master's at U- UCL um, in uh, nature conservation which kind of showed that I was particularly interested in ecology and and the nature side of things. And then I was very lucky that I uh, got a uh, volunteer position, first of all, at the Environmental Investigation Agency, which is a wonderful uh, small international NGO focused particularly on environmental crime 
and wildlife crime. I did that for three years, absolutely loved it, had a great experience of learning about campaigning and traveling around the world and really understanding sort of international uh, species conservation and uh, environmental agreements and so on. And then I got my first job uh, as an uh, assistant campaigner at Friends of the Earth in the UK. Uh, I did that and worked on wildlife issues in the UK and particularly sort of followed, had the great opportunity to follow through a major piece of environmental legislation through UK Parliament, which was a great thing to be able to do because you don't get to do that very often. Um, and then I sort of ended up in different positions and ended up managing a team at Friends of the Earth. I knew I wanted to get some different experience as well, so I ended up, uh, I was very lucky to then be offered the job of Deputy Director at the University of Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership. And I think that was partly because I'd already been doing sort of uh, uh, alongside my main job, I'd already been doing lecturing on executive ed education courses on the environment. Did that for a bit, then back to Friends of the Earth uh, as Director of Policy and Campaigns, then became Chief Exec in 2015. Uh, loved that, absolutely loved that. But then uh, the opportunity presented to me for the job of Chief Executive at the Wildlife Trust uh, in late 2019. And that seemed like a fantastic opportunity. So I ended up uh, doing that and that's where I am now. Um, but, you know, there's always several hats that I wear and things that keep lots of different things that keep me busy that I'm always uh, kind of juggling. And I think that's um, something I've always liked in my career is to to, to make sure that I'm gaining expertise and be able to deliver input and impact through a number of different avenues at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Are you, can you tell us a bit about the Wildlife Trust for, for those in the audience that don't know um, about them? Well, yes, it's an extraordinary organisation, or more to the point, really, a federation of organisations in the UK. Um, we are uh, 46 separate local and national wildlife trusts, so uh, some covering individual counties or large cities in England. Uh, Kent Wildlife Trust, Essex Wildlife Trust, London Wildlife Trust, for example. Some might cover a group of counties in uh, the UK. Uh, some might cover nations in the UK, like Scottish Wildlife Trust or Ulster Wildlife Trust. Um, but together, the scale is absolutely extraordinary. We have around, collectively, we have 870,000 uh, members. We have um, more wildlife sites, more nature reserves than McDonald's has got restaurants in the UK. In fact, a thousand more. And we estimate that 60% of the British population live within just three miles walk or cycle ride of our reserves. So we're very well known in the UK for our wonderful nature reserves. But we've also been working really hard over a couple of decades now to put nature into recovery outside those reserves as well. And we work in partnership with many people and provide advice, say, to farmers and other landowners as well. Um, we've been kind of uh, leading the charge for reintroduction of key species like, like beavers, for example, in the UK that were once uh, kind of missing. And again, our scale is pretty significant, something like uh, almost 3000 staff across the UK as a whole. Um, so we're actually one of the world's largest sort of nature organisations. But because we haven't done so much work internationally in the past, we're less well known internationally like that. But maybe maybe that's something that might change a bit in the, in the future, because I'm very keen that the work we do in the UK, putting nature into recovery, is part of a sort of more clearly part of an international movement. Yeah, it would be great to see that happen. I mean, a bit like the Conservation Collective is. And, and uh, you know, I'd be interested in hearing um, some of your aims for the organisation as well. Charlie Barrell, for example, who is leading this this fantastic project at Nepa State um, to rewild 
parts of um, our agricultural land says we need to only set aside about the amount of, of land that's set aside for golf courses uh, for nature and then we should be fine. Um, what are your aims um, at the Wildlife Trust? Have you said this or some aims like that? Well, I think there's um, there's kind of quite a lot of agreement now between scientists and conservationists, conservationists more widely that globally we need to get around 30 percent, so a third of our land and sea uh, being put into recovery for nature by 2030. Now, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that that is exclusively for nature, not at all. Uh, that can be done in so absolutely in a way where humans are part of that, living alongside that and is integrated in that as well. But we have to be really clear that we, we have to be managing that in a way that is putting nature into recovery rather than seeing continued degradation. And of course, that has to be protected and connected as well. It's not just the amount, but the shape of it and, and how that uh, connects as well to do that. So um, we agreed that as the Wildlife Trust last year, that that would become our very clear objective for the Wildlife Trust in the UK, that we want to see 30 percent of the UK's land and sea being put into recovery for nature by 2030. And we've got very clear plans about how to do that, creating a nature recovery network across uh, the UK, joining the dots between our nature reserves and those of other organisations and uh, designated sites in the UK as well. And I think the thing that we've got to be really clear about is this is uh, this is something we've got to do urgently and at scale. You know, for too long around this whole kind of debate, there's been a sense that we can take as long as we want over it. Well, that's not the case at all. We are in a climate ecological emergency. We've got to move fast. We've got to have clear plans about how we're going to get there by 2030, which actually means what are the milestones by 2025? How do we break it down? And that's got to happen in the UK, but it's got to happen globally as well. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. I'm I'm one of those people that that you know one of the people living in the countryside. I, I receive, rather my children receive your Sussex Wildlife Trust uh, magazine, which is a fantastic read. I, I strongly recommend it um, as a gift to godchildren and uh, for birthday parties because it's just marvelous. And your posters hang adorn the bedrooms of my children. Um, Delighted to hear it. <laughs> yeah, I live I live in the in the Southlands National Park. So again, you know, surrounded by nature. Uh, so I feel very close to it. But for many people, you know, even the the term biodiversity may seem as something very abstract, and and they might wonder what we actually mean by that. You know, what is biodiversity, and why do we need to protect it? Yeah, well, I would agree. I think there has been a bit of a problem that for perhaps over a hundred years the kind of body language of the nature conservation movement and the actual language has been one that sometimes has made it hard for other people to connect to and understand you know ultimately uh, this whole movement of nature conservation movement was founded by scientists and scientists that were very interested in in sort of detailed precise species and uh, the life cycle of individual species and so on and perhaps with the benefit of hindsight i think something we've done too much is talk about individual species and talk about species extin extinctions say or even talk about individual sites and not talked enough about ecosystems and not talked enough about ecosystem services and the amazing function that nature does in uh, supporting us all it's worth bearing in mind that, you know, um, the whole economy, the whole of our society is a wholly owned subsidiary to nature, not the other way around. You know, uh, 
if our society if if our society goes if our economy goes nature will be fine but if we lose nature then there's no future for our economy or our society you know we are 100% dependent on nature for everything for food for clothing for water and so on so it's kind of mad that as humanity we've treated it so badly and that we are eroding that away and losing the potential for nature to look after us uh, for the future and um, all of that means it comes back to my point is that all of that is eroding the ability uh, for us to have uh, progress for humanity in the future and that's what it's really about it's not just about you know nature's a nice thing to look at and to visit the weekends and so on much as that's important as well and much as actually the evidence is really clear that the connection that people need to have with uh, nature is very important for people's mental health and well-being that's not surprising because we're part of nature but you know fundamentally nature is the foundation to everything else we hold dear so we really start should start treating it as such yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Um, I always talk about this, about it as the underlying infrastructure for our very lives. You know, it it provides us with water, clean water, clean air, uh, food, and without it, and and most importantly, almost safety and security. You know, so far we've been able to to completely rely on certain weather patterns, rely on seasons that are so important for harvests uh, and everything else as we know and um, if you know now we see this being destabilized and and we really have to think of ways regenerating nature has to be the way forward to stabilize our climate again and that is what our focus has to be on i'd love to hear from you really now for the next 10 minutes um where sort of what you'd like government to do you know what role should government play in this really and what would you like to see happen in the UK alone uh, on this, particularly given um, you've just been to the IUCN uh, conference? Maybe you can explain a bit about the IUCN. And then upcoming is, of course, COP26, which is um, the international climate negotiation, uh, which will be hosted in Glasgow this autumn. Uh, what, what do governments have to do now right now and then later we can speak about what people can do individually well i mean the first thing is to, to fully acknowledge we are facing a climate and ecological emergency i mean that's a phrase that we've heard quite a few times over the last few years but the science could not be clearer that unless we turn this around sort of roughly within the next 10 years uh, both in terms of the climate crisis and the nature crisis, then, you know, some of the options available to us in the future uh, are no longer there. And so, you know, we should be treating an emergency in the way that, say, we treated COVID as an emergency over the last year. Actually, governments really acted and, and behaved as if COVID was an emergency because it was. And we don't see that kind of level of action in tackling the climate and nature crisis that we need to. And what does that mean? That means that every single decision government makes, every bit of policy they make, should be trying to tackle this. The problem is we still see it as, you know, sometimes even when you get some good policies that might come out, come out from 
departments of environment around the world and governments around the world, then often those are negated and cancelled out by appalling policies still coming out from Treasury or the, the finance ministries um, or from uh, infrastructure ministries and so on. So here in the UK, for example, you know, you have uh, great words sometimes from Boris Johnson and other ministers about the need to tackle the climate ecological emergency, and sometimes even some you know, half decent policies coming through. But at the same time, at the moment, the government is planning to spend £27 billion on building new roads in this country, many of them through precious wildlife sites. Those are just incompatible. Um, at the same time, the government is out trying to agree in a post-Brexit world, trying to agree trade deals with uh, countries around the world to try and make up for the fact that we don't have those trade deals through our membership of the European Union anymore. And guess what? It's very clear that they're not really too bothered about maintaining environmental standards when they're agreeing those new trade deals. Look at the trade deal that's being proposed between the UK and Australia, which will um, almost certainly lead to import of agricultural food from Australia that is um, that is produced to a much lower uh, environmental standard than that in the UK. And it will undercut UK farmers in doing that. I could give so many more examples. The appalling failure here in the UK for us to actually try and insulate our homes properly. You know, we've seen a consistent failure by consistent governments to put the policies in place that enable uh, homes in the UK to be properly insulated. I mean, it's a joke. I, I really struggle to understand why the UK as a country just can't work this one out. When you look at Germany, you look at other countries that are just doing a really good job broadly of making sure that their homes are, are fit for the 21st century and are, are not leaking huge amounts of energy into the atmosphere. So um, it's really frustrating that this happens. And and uh, so and that's what you see. You sometimes see a lack of joined up government and delivery on this as if it was uh, a kind of emergency. So that's the kind of effort that we need to see. Uh, we need joined up government that will absolutely put the policies in place that enable us to address the, address the climate and ecological emergency. And we need to see the absence of policies that will take us in the wrong direction. Of course, what we also need is cooperation at all levels. We need to see action at local authority level and city level. We need to see that at the level of individual nations. And of course, in the UK, we are four nations across England, Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland. So we need to see action at all of those. We need to see lots of collaboration across regions, like across uh, Europe. And we need to see collaboration internationally as well to make all this work. And, and then we might get somewhere. Um, but, you know, actually, if we if every time we see a bit of policy that might be kind of quite good for tackling the environment, it is negated by many more that are taking us in the wrong direction. We're not going to get anywhere. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's astonishing if you think about, you know, we, we're nature. We're a nation of nature lovers in the UK. I just looked at the, the program on BBC One the other day and, and I think the first sort of four I saw were all, you know, gardening, uh, country life, etc. You know, it was all all around nature. And, and there is no doubt that the average British person really cares for nature. Um, and I think here in Britain, we've trusted so far that government would do the right thing and they would, would sort of make sure everything's on track. Um, but I think we are now seeing that you know, not enough is happening and it's not happening fast enough either. And we therefore really need to see people take action individually. We are all called upon to become active ambassadors for nature, spokespeople for nature. Uh, and what 
But what does that require on a sort of individual level? You know, if you're speaking to, you know, here you've got your members, uh, over 800,000 of them, which is fantastic. Uh, and I know you're encouraging them to take action. Uh, how can we encourage people who perhaps aren't members of the Wildlife Trust yet uh, to also come on board? Because we need every single one of them today. Yeah, well, I've often been asked this in my career is, you know, what are the action that people can take? And, uh, you know, obviously I used to sort of say, well, here's, you know, this month is this petition or that action or whatever. But in fact, what I would say now is I think what's most important is that people develop their own agency and work out what's the best contribution they can make to, to tackling this emergency. Because, you know, if you're a parent, um, if you're a teacher, if you're a lawyer, if you're a politician, if you're the chief executive of a global business, the answer will be different. And uh, the thing is, is I think people are quite good at working out what is the best thing that they can do. Um, all of us can do something. That's the key point, though. And uh, so it's actually really inspiring and uh, to have that sense of agency that there's something all of us can do. There's some common things, of course. You know, sometimes I often say to people, one of the simplest things you can do is to to cut your carbon emissions and to uh, benefit nature is obviously to eat less but better meat. You know, I eat meat myself, but I try and eat uh, not too much of it. And when I do eat it, make sure it's good quality and locally sourced. Um, is obviously to uh, either travel less or certainly try not to fly. I mean, I went down to Marseille last week uh, from here and I was very delighted to go by train and I would never dream of flying uh, short haul uh, like that when you, there's an alternative. And and I think just cutting out of many of those, again, it doesn't mean thou shalt never fly, but I think it is very important to, to try and cut it out when you don't need to. Um, Obviously, do what you can to insulate your house and use less energy, all of those kind of things that we know. But actually getting active is really important. And when communities, when people come together in communities to take action and to form kind of community groupings uh, that are campaigning locally on a local issue, campaigning for your local authority to make more space for nature, campaigning on your your local authority uh, to try and use less electricity or to use less energy or, or try and encourage local businesses to go further and faster. That becomes very powerful. And the more people that do that, the more momentum you build, the more people will get involved. And it becomes this mutually uh, reinforcing cycle that become incredibly powerful. And that's where I think that's where I get so much of my hope from is when you see what's happened over the last few years, particularly actually involving youngest, the youngest people, um, actually people coming together to take action in support of this agenda is ultimately what will drive deeper political action, which is what's needed. The leadership is coming from communities, not from politicians. So that is actually quite a powerful and exciting message. That's right. That's right. And it, it shows that we can all, you know, as ordinary people do the ordinary thing, or if we wish so, the extraordinary thing, both ordinary and extraordinary will be hugely valuable in this effort. Um, the team at Nature 2030 had a few personal questions um, to round off the conversation. Uh, they wanted to know, Greg, what inspires you the most? Well, I, in a funny kind of way, I've just answered that. I think I think it is seeing people taking action. You know, it's local community campaigning. That's what always inspires me. You know, it's one thing for someone like me that's in a, you know, chief exec position of one of the, the larger environmental organisations. You know, I can 
I can ha- I've always got a mouthpiece. I can say things and so on. But the thing that's inspired me most in my career is seeing extraordinary, ordinary people campaigning around a local issue and seeing that as part of a bigger picture. You know, I've seen people taking amazing action to try and create new habitat for bees. Uh, I've seen people doing amazing campaigning to stop fracking in this country or to stop the building of roads through local wildlife sites. Um, I've seen, you know, teachers coming together to campaign for to make sure that there's better effort, uh, better focus on climate and nature in the school curriculum. Um, and I've seen children coming together to do exactly that as well. That's always so inspiring to me that these actions that people can take uh, locally, but as part of a national and international story, that's incredibly inspiring. And uh, it's it's definitely where the hope uh, comes from, I think, for the future. Mm, fantastic. They say what they want to know, what has your biggest failure been? Do you consider anything as a failure? Well, you know, I think um, I wouldn't say so much say a failure, but what I always uh, find difficult is there's always so much more to do than we've got the time to do it. You know, the hardest thing to do in these jobs is to make choices about what we focus on. And every time we decide to do a campaign or a particular if focus on one thing, that means we can't do it on something else. And that's really difficult. And and really getting the the right, making the right choices, which I think I have most of the time, but, you know, making the right choices about the things we focus on is very important. And the challenge about that is it's not just, you know, what's an important issue because everything's important. You know, you've got to choose something that's an important issue, but where there's the right window of opportunity to make a difference where for whatever reasons the timing is right where there's a sense that it's right in the terms of the public mood and that they get involved as well and so on and there's so many issues that are incredibly important um but that you know you've got to think does it tick every single one of those boxes before you really put effort into it and i just i always wish we could do more but obviously you've got to balance that with focus and delivering impact as well yeah, so true. And um, what have you been proudest of? Oh, goodness. Um, well, I suppose over the last 10 years, and certainly in the time that I was um, uh, director of campaigns and then chief executive Friends of the Earth, I feel really proud of the getting the campaign on bees going because actually the starting point for that was not bees as such, but it was particularly after the Copenhagen Climate Conference and there was a lot of climate fatigue amongst activists. And actually, there hadn't been, certainly in the UK, much of a focus around nature for a while. And I felt very strongly that we had to almost like get the environment movement back to its roots and and talk about nature again. Not to the exclusion of climate, nothing like. But actually, I think the environmental movement, you know, for, for a period went into kind of a slightly dodgy area where we were so obsessed about carbon that we were losing the bigger picture. And I think, you know, actually, that's the way to making real mistakes about what the answers are. And so I think it was really important to try and connect the the British public back to nature again. And that's what I was looking to do. And uh, we just so decided that the way to do that was a campaign focused on bees. And, you know, it meant that we could have a campaign about biodiversity and ecosystems and ecosystem function and, and ecosystem services, but without using any of those words. And bees did it brilliantly. And hundreds of thousands of people, like, you know, huge numbers of people got involved in that campaign. Um, and it was very, very powerful. It sent a clear message as to the importance of nature to uh, British politicians, I think. And it, and it wasn't just us. Loads of organisations got involved and, 
and so on. But that was very powerful. And equally, the campaign uh, that we ran at Friends of the Earth to stop fracking, I think, was huge because, you know, the science is so clear now that we've just got to stop burning fossil fuels as, as quickly as possible. And the idea that you'd create brand new fossil fuel infrastructure in a country like the UK just was just ludicrous to my mind. And yet, you know, George Osborne and David Cameron were absolutely determined to do that. And, you know, to, to one of my previous points, it was local communities that really kind of came together to kind of stop that and led the charge on that. And I think that hopefully will cause any future government to think twice about, you know, trying to invest in new fossil fuel infrastructure. But more generally, uh, Bianchi, you know, I suppose I feel proud that um, hopefully on a good day I can bring some energy and clarity to uh you know really the bigger mission about the bigger focus and a mission that we all need in this community to focus on tackling the climate ecological emergency and and i think that's kind of needed we've got to we've got to focus on the big picture the big mission the big problem uh not just the individual uh, issues within it yeah absolutely and then finally if you could give your younger self one piece of advice what would it be well, I think my younger self already knew this, but it would be uh, never take no for an answer. You know, I've been told so many times in my career that something isn't going to happen and it's not possible and you're never going to win it and you should give up. And I've had government ministers tell me categorically, you are not going to win this. We're not going to do it. And um, no, 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 no. You know, uh, but then if you keep campaigning, if you build the pressure, you change the reality, then you win it. And uh, pretty much on everything I've ever worked on, I've been told categorically it won't happen. Uh, but if you keep pushing, uh, you'll get there. I'm pretty sure that my younger self already knew that, though, anyway. But <laughs> That's brilliant. Well, thank you very much. I think this was terrific. Uh, I wish we had more time uh, to delve deeper into lots of subjects, but I hope we will get the opportunity again to get together. And um, yeah, I said, delighted to meet you in person and um, hope that many more people will come on board and join us in this effort to protect this most valuable treasure of ours, our environment. Thank you Thanks, very much. Bianca. Thank and you, it's been great chatting with you. Stay in touch, take care. Yeah.